You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, and welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. And as always, it's a wonderful thing for us to bring you topics of interest in the world of wine. And how are you doing this week, Mark? I am good, Kim. Thank you. Always good to be here talking wine. Very good. Same here. And uh, looking like maybe we'll be able to get together and uh, start doing some more in-person stuff, hopefully very, very soon. I think we're we're all very optimistic for the summer. And as we to the month of June, uh, I think that this is going to be, be a great time of year for us to explore some new wine topics, some new wine styles, uh, and just some, some more interesting things that's going on in our, uh, our, our neck of the professional woods. Yeah, things are happening. We're starting to look at uh, events to, again, so that's good Good news. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. Hopefully, so what's uh, first today, Kim? What do you so got? What's first today is a, sort of a, an interesting article about kind of different immigrant groups and how they affected the wine world. And this one is a group that you wouldn't ordinarily associate with wine. That's the Irish. Like, what do the Irish have to do with wine? And it turns out they actually have have a fair bit of influence in mostly American, Australian, but also French winemaking traditions, which I always like to have a little bit of wine history to talk about in my back pocket. And uh, this one certainly fits that bill. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you were surprised about this article, which it was in sarasotamagazine.com how the Irish changed the wine world. And like you, Kim, when I first saw it, I was like, how the Irish, you know, and and you've heard things about in California, immigrants and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But so much, you know, more was in this that really surprised me and shocked me, the relationship and the links with other things. And it was based on a book, How the Irish Saved Civilizations by Thomas Cahill. And when I heard the title of the book, I was thinking about a documentary. I saw how beer like saved the world or formed the world type of thing <laughs> yeah. and how everything was linked to beer. And it, it reminded me of that, how, how now the Irish are linked to all this other formation in the wine world. So I forget a- when this book was published, but it, I don't believe it's a new book. Yeah, I don't think so. It's been around for a while. I think it's been around and and the article just brought it to light. So you mentioned how the Irish were involved in French wine and they had said how the Irish actually went to France and Spain to help them fight battles against England in Mm -hmm. the 18th century. So that led to more expansion of their skills in those lands. So when you think about Ireland and wine... They don't make wine because of the location they're at. It, they're just too north to, to really grow right. anything. But they had the skills to make it, and they brought it with them wherever they went. Right. And you know, usually when we talk about either winemaking in the U.S., when we talk about the Irish, we tend to talk to the Irish when we talk about beer, and we talk, tend to talk about the Italians when, yeah. when we talk about wine. But what was really interesting about this article, I felt, was sort of the the influence without necessarily being the 
people who were necessarily doing all of the grunt work. Like there was a, a whole section here about how so many of the well-known French wineries, um, especially in Bordeaux, were actually originally owned by Irishmen. And that is one of the ways that they kind of got their start in the wine industry. Because like you said, it's not a fruit that grows particularly well in Ireland. But this idea of after the mid 1800s and the Irish kind of there's this Irish diaspora where they spread all across the world. So you you get these populations of folks who were originally from Ireland in the Americas and you get them in Australia and you get them in like every English speaking country. And then you also get them in France. So I feel like that was not that it was new information to me, but because I, I did know that it's like, oh yeah, Obreon, you know, <laughs> of course that was, you know, an, an Irish, originally an Irish name and uh, ownership of that very well-regarded uh, Bordeaux house. But then they go into a lot of other information about how once people left Ireland and settled in other places across the world, that they brought the ingenuity and they brought, you know, sort of technological innovations and just this desire to do something with the land that suited both their skills and then also the new places that they went to. So I think that's one of the reasons why we, you know, we sort of see grape growing is that it's not necessarily what they already knew how to do. But when you landed in some place like Australia, there was this market for making wine, growing grapes. And that is really how it started once the English penal colonies started to be less of the, the issue in Australia, and it was more open to other types of immigration. And you think about it, Kim, why does it surprise us when if you look at history in, in wine, you had the Romans, the Greeks, right? Wherever they went, they brought their winemaking skills and they improved things and they grew things. They brought their grapes. So why should it have been any different for the Irish, right? Yeah. It makes perfect sense, but you just mm -hmm. never hear about the Irish. And then you mentioned about the Chateau, you say Aubryon, mm -hmm. very famous French Chateau. And they're saying the original name was what? O'Brien? O'Brien. O'Brien. And when you originally see the first written reference to it, it's spelled H-O-B-R-I-O-N, I think. Yeah, Or Brian, like how we would spell the first name, Brian. It's different than the spelling is now, but it's also not like that traditional Irish spelling with, you know, the O apostrophe. So right. kind of this like, well, is this apocryphal? Is this real? <laughs> like, was this actually who they were referring to? So that was sort of interesting because I hadn't like made that connection necessarily, even though, you know, this is the stuff that I study. <laughs> oh, and that's one of the, is that one of the, is that a first growth or yes. it's, it's yep, that's one of the top five chateau in the, in the world, in the world I mean, for Bordeaux. It's, yep. It's amazing. And, and then you also mentioned about how the Irish criminals, they were sent to Australia, which, you know, that's the whole story behind the 19 crimes wine line about mm -hmm. the criminals and different crimes. And then they linked that time in Australia to the Jim Barry wines, which right. was another Irish family called O'Shea family. And I never associated the Jim Barry Australian wines with Irish either. So, I mean, that was another link that was totally surprising to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think about Australian wine production as we know it, 
it's not terribly old. There was some grape growing, winemaking kind of in those earlier years in the 19th century. And that's when a lot of these houses and these names were established. You know, some place like Penfolds, probably the most famous of the fine wines out of Australia, not a particularly old wine label, like not even 100 years old yet. So it's still a fairly young wine growing nation. So to turn up even in history from the boys, it's, it's always good to add to the story because the more we know, kind of the more we we really can understand where it fits in the rest of wine history. And then in, you know, making sense of what are out, what's out there today for, for us to drink, what's good. And that story, you know, you always talk about the story behind wine or the story behind a winery and that that's one of the ways that customers can get really geared up to want to buy that because of that story behind it. And this all about those stories. And I think the Jim Barry line the, has an image on it of like a golfer that now that I think about it, it's almost like it is a like an Irish image, you know, of go, of golfing type of thing. So I think I, isn't golfing Scottish, Scottish, Irish. <laughs> to me, it's, just, it's all the, they all look the same in golf, you know, those golf pants. Anyway, so let's move on to the California link. And when mm. you you heard, I mean, like myself, we've heard stories of how the Irish immigrants started the wineries or, or wine making in California, but they linked it to the, is it Concanon winery? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, have you ever heard that link before? No, I hadn't, but uh, I, uh, but honestly, I don't think I've n- ever necessarily made a connection between what the name of the winery sounds like and, oh, where might they have been from in Europe? Right. Right. And maybe I should have. And it just kind of never crossed my mind. Besides, if I hear an Italian name that I'm like, oh, they must have come over, you know, from maybe the south of Italy and they brought their skills with them and blah, 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 blah. And I feel like you do that from sometimes a French name perspective, too. So I think that my brain automatically goes if the last name sounds like it's coming from a wine producing country, then I make the connection. But if it's just like a generic old Englishy kind of last name. I don't necessarily think of a wine connection to Europe. And right. I, I don't know what that says about me. Probably says something not good about me, but I don't know. I just, I, I think about the history for those other countries, but not necessarily from these countries that aren't known for making wine. Oh, I thought this was a great pot of wine. Here she's saying this James uh, Concanyon winery they were the first california wine that was made from french grapes by the irish mm-hmm. so i mean that's to me it was like it blew me away i didn't really know of that ever and and when you you heard of uh who's the french gentleman famous chest uh you say is you know his name i can't think of it off though he's a irish i mean a, a french gentleman who's always linked to the first this and that in california to me, they didn't put this, they didn't say this was the first, but to say the first with French grapes, to me, means it, it probably was the first being made. Mm. So I thought that was that was big. Yeah. And the one thing that I never put two and two together, they ended the article with Hennessy. Right. Did you, And I, I never put that together where Hennessy cognac brand was is the most recognized Irish name in the world. Yeah. And it makes sense because 
cognac is made from grapes. It's a brandy. So yeah. it's distilled grape spirits. So of course there has to be, I mean, before you can get brandy, before you can get cognac, you have to have wine. So you have to have that grape growing knowledge and that grape growing skill in order to be able to create your final product. Now, I mean, granted, it's got a few more steps because there's distillation involved too. But yeah, absolutely. All and those sometimes years we don't seeing that. Sometimes we don't step back and think about those other things that use grapes or, you know, use wine or use distilled spirits from grapes as being a part of this continuum of it still could be considered wine, but just in a, you know, a slightly different form. So like often when we talk about wine history, we talk about, you know, different monasteries and the monks and stuff like that. And we kind of ignore the whole history of liquor and liqueurs and all of this other stuff that they found very creative ways to use either leftover wine and to add things like herbs and flowers and things to make different kinds of cordials and stuff. And we tend to forget those kinds of things and that they are still part of the wine continuum. Yeah, I'm definitely, you know, after reading this article, I'm, I'm going to uh, check out this book and mm -hmm. read more. I'm sure there's a lot of things they didn't cover in this article that's oh, in I'm there. Sure. So, so definitely and if you go to the, um, the Concanon website for that California winery, they do, they write out right out there with their, they have a, a little tab about talking about the history of the winery. And they talk about, he came over in 1883 and this is the history of their vineyard and that they've been making wine there ever since. So all these little bits for the wine history, kind of putting it all together and can inform our uh, buying choices and our drinking choices. You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. Every week, we are broadcasting on Franklin Radio, WFPR 102.9 FM. You can hear us all around the world on WFPR.FM. You can hear our past episodes on SoundCloud or iTunes. If you'd like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at VinitasWineWorks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, please go to FranklinLiquors.com. Next, we have an article that was in Wine Enthusiast Magazine, 10 Wine Tips for Beginners. And uh, I always find these interesting, Ken, the top 10 things that beginners should probably look at before or maybe as they're exploring wine. Do you want to pick one out of the list to start with, Kim, or you just want me to go right down in order of, that they had? Why don't we just go down in order? All right. That way you don't have organized. My, you don't have my biases about right. which ones I think are the most important. So the number one tip for beginners is to invest in stemware or glasses. And this is something it's quite, you know, some controversy about do you really have to spend to buy the proper glasses mm -hmm. if you want to taste wine? What do you, what do you think? Yeah. You know, I think this is one of those things that is constantly changing, but not the idea of you need to have something that it doesn't have to be fancy, but it has to fill a couple of roles, shall we say. So the idea is that you're not going to get the most out of your wine if you're drinking it out of, or you're tasting it out of a water glass or a jam jar or just any old glass that you have in your kitchen. So have glasses that give you enough room to pour nice size pour in there 
and that the rims should be fairly thin. And that is because in order to get the most aromatics out of your wine, it can't have too thick of a lip on your glass because then the aromas don't get directed towards your nose. So I would say that those are the most important things. This article says that you can get stems that will go, if you want to get them, that will go in the dishwasher. That's fine. There are some types of like dish detergent that if you wash your glassware in the dishwasher, sometimes they'll leave like a residue or a little bit of a smell. Like you don't necessarily want to use those things. So there's like different levels of how serious do I want to get as far as how do I treat my glassware? You know, do you need different shapes? I've kind of come full circle on the different shapes of your wine glasses. I still regularly use like Mm, I hate to even say it now, but like seven or eight different shapes for my wines. But I find myself being a little bit less strict about what I use them for. So like yeah. it's all bets are off when it comes to white wines. I might, I'm going to pour a white wine in whatever glass I, I happen to have around. So I think just, you know, consistency and then can make it a little bit of a nicer glass that gives you a little bit of an experience. But other than that, I don't think that people need to go too crazy with spending a lot of money. It doesn't have to be crystal. Just get something that fits nicely in your hand. That's something that I always had a problem with too, because I've got small hands. So those stemless glasses always gave me a little bit of trouble. Glassware, I mean, we're wine geeks that this article is based on. If you're beginning, my only tip is don't use plastic. Don't use paper. Use a glass. Make sure the glass, like Kim had mentioned, is clean and, and doesn't yeah. pick up scent for detergents or cedar cabinets, things like that, because it'll give you a better experience exploring the wine. The second tip they mentioned for beginners for wine is get more tools or gadgets. And we, we talk about this as well as do we really need a lot of tools or do we just need the basics? Do we, you know, a corkscrew and you're good as far as I'm concerned for yeah. beginners. I think it's not about how many tools do you have, but do you have the right tools? Yeah. So one of the things that they mentioned in this article is gel-filled wine sleeves that you keep in the freezer and that will keep your bottle of white wine that you've just pulled from the fridge, will keep it cold for at least a good hour, maybe longer. I own three. I used to own four. I don't know where the other one went, but I use these things all the time. They live in my freezer because I use them so religiously. Like almost any time I'm drinking a white wine, I will pop one of these sleeves on my bottle just to keep it at the perfect temperature. Let me ask you about that, Kim, yeah. because I've never used one, never owned one. So you take a white out of the fridge, you wrap it with this thing. Why, yep. why can't you just put it back in the fridge? Are you I saying you're it, outside? Because I want it on the dining room table so that my uh, husband and I can pass the bottle back and forth to each other at dinner time. Wow. You can't get up and go to the fridge. I, <laughs> no. I, okay. Well, I, <laughs> all right. Because we do long leisurely dinners. Dinner in my house usually lasts about 45 minutes. So we share a bottle of wine and he's on one end of the table and I'm on the other and kids are done and they get up and they go, I don't know, watch Star Wars or something. And we chat and we pass our bottle of wine back and forth. And if that's a white wine I want or rosé, I want that still to be cold. Maybe so, mine just never gets gets warm. You know, it just maybe. goes so fast. You drink it so quickly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <gasps> All right. The next tip, Kim, was select a house wine. To oh, keep wait a minute. I'm hand. not done with the gadgets. Oh, okay. oh we, said, <laughs> we said corkscrew. We so said a good corkscrew. 
And I would say something that is not mentioned in this article, but if you are someone who likes sparkling wine, like, do you like mimosas on Sunday mornings? Do you like having a bottle of Prosecco open maybe once a week? You have to get a champagne stopper. Yeah, that's a These good are my best friend. They are different from other stoppers because they close around the flanged lip of uh, sparkling wine bottles and it keeps the bubbles in your bottle. So if you are someone who even occasionally drinks sparkling wine, have at least one or two of these on hand because they are really, really a wonderful tool to have. And it's a safe way to put the thing back. In the yes, fridge. You absolutely. Don't, you don't throw and that's, I mean, not only there. does it keep the bubble good, but it is the safest safe, way yeah. to cork up. Because don't um, forget, once you put a cork or if you put a real cork in there, it's going to build up pressure. It's eventually yeah. going to blow it out. So, yeah. yeah and you tip. don't want to be like getting hit in the face or something with that cork. Good tip. So now we'll move on to right. select a house wine to keep on hand. So I, I'm assuming they're saying you're into wine now. Find one you really like and make that your go-to. Someone comes over or you just want a glass, you know, have a couple of those type of wines on Mm -hmm. hand, which is a good tip. Yeah. And I kind of go back and forth on this because sometimes I really am into this idea. Like, okay, this is my house wine. I'm going to have six bottles of this in my cellar. So I always know that I have it. I actually have a couple of things that currently are sort of fitting this bill for me. But I think it's smart, especially when you're trying to learn what you like. We talk about a favorite and you load up on it. And then over time, you get to see how that wine changes in its flavors. And I don't know if necessarily it would work in this sort of situation because you sort of need to hold those wines for a while. But it is nice that you don't have to stress about the idea of, oh my goodness, somebody came over for dinner. What am I going to open up? Or it's a Friday night and we just want a bottle of wine. What are we going to open? So I think there's a comfort factor in having those favorite go-to wines. And they don't have to be expensive. And honestly, they shouldn't be expensive. Because if you are opening two bottles a week of these, you don't really want to make them be particularly pricey. Yeah. And everybody's house wine is going to depend depend on your budget or in the style you like. So yeah. And what you cook and what you enjoy drinking and even what season it is too. Yeah. And if you get along with your in-laws and stuff. Like that, <laughs> stuff and if like you that. know what your in-laws like to drink, yeah. I'm very lucky in that regard. And based on that tip, they also said, you know, know how to store these wines properly was another tip for beginners. And right. we talked in the past, no heat, no vibration, cool rooms, less light. You don't want to just put them in the fridge near the stove type of thing yeah. or on top of the fridge. Yeah, that I, that I think is one of the worst things that people can do is put put their wine on top of the refrigerator because not only do you get the vibrations, which over time is going to deteriorate that wine. You know, we think about, I know there are always those stories of like people's houses falling down because they're too close to an airport and they're always being shaken. The same thing happens to wine. Also, it gets really warm on top of your refrigerator. Yeah. The heat is the enemy of wine. Yeah, the stove. Yeah, no, near the yeah. stove, a, a liquor cabinet or a shelf that is next to a window. Windows, that then yeah. gets sunlight and warms up. I think that's one that people don't think about. And every once in a while, I, I kind of get stuck with that because I have a, a piece of furniture in my dining room that sometimes there's nothing on it. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to plop my bottles of wine over there that are open. And it's like two days later, they're sitting in the warm sun and I'm like, oh, that was a really not smart idea. So I think sometimes we don't even 
think about, you know, where are we going to put these things, especially if you have a crowded kitchen, but you do need to be aware that those vibrations and that heat will deteriorate your wine. The next tip, Kim, for wine tip for beginners was take notes or use apps. And we've talked, you know, I'm a gadget geek and I, we both take notes. We do it different ways. For me, I think people that are just beginning, it's all about use your phone and take pictures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, taking mental notes. I like this. Take a picture of it. Yeah. So to me, that's the best way. The yeah. apps and everything for beginners, I think the apps might be a little too crazy and taking notes. Yeah, you know, I go- think the taking notes thing is not, it's very hard to do because if you're just, maybe you went out to dinner with friends and you got a particularly good bottle of wine. Are you going to sit there and write wine notes while, right, <laughs> you right. know, while you're with your buddies at dinner? No. Yeah. Or, it's super or open easy up an to app. take a picture of the label. Yeah. Or open up an app and, you know, while you're with people. Yeah. Just take a picture, make a note and look at it another time to you could write notes down by looking at it and remember it. Yep. Absolutely. Then they said to become friends with clerks at your local wine store. I like this. I like when these articles. You got to be that. (laughs) It's all about making a connection. Any store you go. And I mean, if you do shop at a store and there's no one there to talk to, you can't make a connection. So think of that when you want to shop small. That's my little tip right there. Yeah. So we agree to that. Next. Shop small and shop local. Next, we say uh, find a great wine on the cheap. They said cheap, <laughs> which, which kind of goes around <laughs> with selecting house wines. You know, you right. want to always try to find that bargain or the, the something you like that's an everyday wine. Remember the in-laws. Mm-hmm. You want to get something that's not too crazy. But uh, it is hard with pricing out there. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell. Is this $10 bottle of wine a value or is this $10 bottle of wine a ripoff? And, well, you know, a value if you like it. That, you know, no, that is absolutely it, right? true. But how do you know that you like it if you have never bought it before? And cheap to, to you is 40 bucks. To me, it's 20 bucks. So, right. absolutely. You know, yeah. It's, it's all, out. it's a very, very personal thing. And it's also very subjective. Like, it's not, anything that you can really put your finger on. This is the answer to this question. So yeah. So finding, I like their idea of finding wine regions that produce really good wines and then sort of explore within those regions for areas that aren't terribly expensive. So they recommend like the Languedoc, Southern France, for all styles, but especially some some rosés that aren't crazy expensive. They mentioned South America. I feel like South America is getting a little pricier now. Like I almost feel like this is advice that a few years ago made sense, but not so much anymore. Yeah, um, it's like you're not we're gonna seeing be, that. Continues to see emerging wine growing regions. Yeah. So. There's certain areas where years ago you saw inexpensive wines from those regions, but now Mm -hmm. you're only seeing the higher tier. You know, it's kind of like Australia. You were flooded with all the, you know, yellowtails of the world. Now you're just seeing the mid price or higher price stuff. You're not getting as much of that lower price point. So, but yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there. Uh, The next tip, Kim, for uh, wine tip for beginners, they said, don't snub the box or the can. And we're all in favor. The cans are really trending and mm-hmm. wine was all the trend during the COVID and everybody was locked down. They were getting as much bulk wine as they could. And I mean, there's some good stuff out there. And if you're just starting out and you you want to, uh, you know, build up your palate or whatever, these are great wines to start with. 
and generally inexpensive and understandable. Like the packaging is just one part of the marketing. So not only is it convenient and a very user-friendly sort of packaging, but they're the producers that are making the decision to put their wines into cans or into boxes are going to go that extra step and make sure that you can understand what is on the label. So I think that is very useful also to beginners because you're not looking at 25 words in German that you have no idea what they mean and trying to figure out what does this wine taste like. They're going to give you a little bit more understandable language on the on that label because A, they want you to buy it. And B, it's just that whole thing is going to make it easier for you. Yeah. The only negative thing I think about if you go in that route and you're starting out is you don't really, you don't get a lot of information from those type of Mm -hmm. products, you know, regions. Well, I mean, a lot of them are, I mean, frankly, a little more mass produced. Right. So you're not, this isn't where you're going to start exploring the intricacies of terroir and of, right. you know, these lesser right. known grape varieties. Right. right. Uh, the next tip, Kim, start a wine tasting club. Or join one. Or join a club. And, <laughs> you know, this can be done so many different ways, groups of friends or professional clubs or whatever. This We have a meetup club that we try to put this forward to people with. So definitely the more you taste with people and who mm-hmm. learn with people, it's great for beginning. Yeah. And I, the line I love in this one is share opinions as you taste, because your impression of a wine is going to be different from somebody else's impression of a wine. And especially if you have a diverse group of people, everyone is going to be coming at these flavors from a slightly different perspective. So you're going to learn something. Other people are going to learn something and you're all going to become stronger wine tasters and stronger wine appreciators by understanding how other people are experiencing those wines. Yeah. Don't be afraid to say exactly what you're smelling or what you're tasting so others can learn from you. And don't be, don't be embarrassed if you're like, I have no idea what this smells like because other people are going to be there to help you through it. And they they follow that up with keep experimenting and learning, Mm -hmm. which is a great follow-up to starting a a club or exploring a club because it, it never ends. I mean, look at Kim and I. Every week we're talking to you and we're always learning new things. And there's so much out there. It's never going to end. So if that scares you and you're beginning in it, it, it only gets more you know, scarier as you go on, <laughs> right? But I, I th- I, I'm glad that you brought up the it can be scary because I completely agree with that. And it is. It can be incredibly intimidating to just randomly pick up this bottle of wine from a shelf and be like, I have no idea what this thing is going to taste like. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to open it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to take the risk. We as humans seem to have this hesitancy to taste new things and to try new things. And it happens at restaurants and it's not just wine, like it's food too, or experiences or whatnot, but be brave, try new things. I know that there is a monetary risk that you take to buying something that you might absolutely hate but it's how you're going to learn. And I think you'll be really proud of yourself if you take some of these risks and buy some wines and you're going to find things that you would not have found and that you'll be really, really happy and excited that now you know about. Yeah, and you don't have to go the geeky route. I mean, how many times can we done events where you you asking questions, people say, I just drink wine, I just like wine. 
you know, that's if that's what you want to do, just start yeah. drinking wine because you like wine. That's perfectly fine. You don't have to go that geeky route. Just enjoy it. And but it's good to know what you're enjoying, to learn what you're enjoying. So it helps you in buying and restaurant yeah. purchases. And you can find that. more that you like. Yeah. It, 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 yeah. Trust me, once you start and if you like it, <laughs> once you start, you're going to want to learn more taste more and find out why am I tasting it? Why does it taste like that from here? Mm -hmm. That type of thing, right? Why do I, why do I like this one, but not this one? Yeah. It's addicting. (laughs) Thank you for listening to us today on the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay. You can find our past episodes on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Leave us your questions and comments. We would love to hear from you. And we look forward to speaking to you again next week. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.